I'm Mike Veerman. I'm a writer, producer, and director for the Bell Creative Agency at Much, and this is the Mike on Much podcast. Welcome to week two of the Mike on Mush podcast. I am here with my producer and friend, Max Kerman. Hello, hello, hello. Week two, we haven't been canceled yet. We haven't been canceled yet. That is true. Still don't have any shoes on. You're still wearing the <laughs> headphones. You've been sitting here a whole week just waiting to do the next podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually. very excited. It's going to be a good show, Max. Yeah, you know, I am feeling a little tired right now. I've had a long day. Why are you feeling tired, Max? Well, I met you at a bar last night on Queen Street. (laughs) (laughs) Our our listeners don't need to know all the details of our lives, Max. So this is the problem. is uh, We have this one friend, Dan Hamilton. And when Dan Hamilton, uh, he works really hard, but when he wants to have a night, you know you're going to be hurting for the next, you know, two days probably. Yeah, it's like you don't want to get on the Dan train. Because when it leaves the station, it usually ends up going off the rails. Um, But you can't help but get on the Dan train. Yeah, but he has this sort of uh, enthusiasm for hanging out that is hard to deny. Like, I was coming in from Hamilton yesterday, and it was pouring rain outside. And I was about to turn around and just stay in for the day. But then I just thought of Dan's, like smiling face and I said alright we gotta go so then we, we met up with you yeah you guys met up with me it was my friend Ryan's birthday party this is all very insider thing. Ryan Dan what <laughs> who are these people why are they drinking all the time um, <laughs> so for episode two we have a treat for you guys because on this episode we have singer songwriter Frank Turner. Frank Turner is like uh, English royalty he, he played the Olympic Games back when London hosted a couple years ago that's true and, but he hates the queen, I think. <laughs> That's the impression I get. <laughs> well, Frank, I will say, like, uh, was very, uh, you know, he's sort of known for being quite opinionated. Uh, but one thing he definitely is, is very charming. Oh, yeah. This is the problem with Brits. When I go over there, everybody's very charming to me. Yeah. Like, Why is that a problem? Well, because I don't know if I should be able to, I should trust them or not. Like, for <laughs> instance, like Hugh, uh, Hugh Grant. Yeah. See, that guy's charming my pants off. Right. He's and soliciting other- prostitutes, though, yeah, too. Your pants aren't the only ones coming off but with his charms uh, by the way that's a very modern reference uh, Hugh Grant um, yeah, what, what year did that happen like 94 90 you had to go on Jay Leno to apologize that's how old that reference is well but but the the, the point remains the same though <laughs> Is that you? I just don't know if you can trust the Brits because they're so charming. Everything they say is funny or insightful, but is it just like their dialect or their tone that is like fooling me? It's I, very hard to get a read when somebody uh, has such a charming accent. Exactly. And later in the episode, guys, we get to what Max likes to call the dessert. We have Shane Cunningham come on, our friend and pop culture aficionado, and Shane talks about how he uh, he also had a fun night last night. He, yeah, he went uh, to the movies and saw Magic Mike. Not only one, but both Magic Mikes last night. Yes, and uh, we really get into, we do a deep dive into Channing Tatum's career. And when I say a deep dive, we, we talk briefly about uh, yeah. 21 Jump Street. All right, let's set the scene for this interview with Frank Turner. So we're in the Much Building, we have a boardroom booked, and so basically the way these things work for some of these interviews is they do this thing called the car wash. So when someone comes through the building, they'll do like, E-talk, and then they'll do much.com and then they'll do MTV and very far down on the totem pole. <laughs> now it's the mic on much. Yeah. We're, we're sort of last in line. Yeah. Like people be like, what? They're the, like, the, the mic then, on what? And the publicist is always like, can we hear what the show sounds like? And then we say, 
Uh, no. No, but have you heard of lights? Because <laughs> she sat with us for 40 minutes. Yeah. So we're just super excited to talk to Frank Turner because, you know, he's known as this sort of really fascinating, articulate guy who has a lot of thoughts. And we're like, this just seems like somebody we want to talk to. But we're not professionals at all. We've, we're not professional. Max, why are you giving away all our secrets? <laughs> okay. So we're sitting in this room um, and we'd done a couple of these interviews before this, but those had been through Max connections. Frank was really kind of the first interview that we did uh, where we had no connection other than much hooking us up with this opportunity to talk to Frank Turner. So we go in and this is the first interview where like Frank has some people with him that he travels with. Uh, There's some much people in the room and then it's Max and I with our little recorder right in the middle of the table. And just to give you a visual, it's just like a little tiny tape recorder. (laughs) And so I'm sort of just sitting there and I don't even really know how to use the tape recorder either. This is another job I've pawned off to Mike. Mike does most of the heavy lifting in this operation. And my one joke with all these interviews is that I'm going to carry around a big mixing soundboard that's not plugged in, but just to make it look like I'm busy, that I'm actually contributing something. That's right. So we were really interested to hear sort of like his thoughts on basically like, you know, being so candid and whether he was going to sort of be open with us. Because anyone that we might be interviewing, some of them have done a lot of press. And, you know, the hope for us is if we get to sit down with them for 25 minutes, um, it could lead to a sort of a more open or revealing conversation. You know, Yeah. Like, and, you know, the first question, I forget what it is. We'll hear it in a second. But the first question you asked, Mike, he yeah. said... I've never got that question before. It's true. And then we, we looked at each other. We like high-fived with our eyes. We did high-five because that's basic, that's the one thing we always want if they say, oh, I haven't heard that before or as Frank would say in a charming British accent. Oh, I haven't heard that before. No, I, I'm so bad at I wasn't right. going to do it so I was hoping you would do a bad British Frank Turner just turned into like a little six-year-old yeah. British boy with a terrible <laughs> British accent. All right. So, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, I'm doing a research <laughs> yeah. We've been doing a lot of yeah, you have a lot of interesting things to say, and I mean, some musicians aren't you know uh, the best interviews are necessarily the most talkative, uh, right. and you have a reputation as you know being articulate, thoughtful, a rambler, a rambler, yes, yeah, much like Max. More than the um, did you grow up in a chatty household? Uh, kind of. Um, that's an excellent first question. Uh, <laughs> um, I guess my, my my dad's side of the family are um, conversationally. Uh, combative family, <laughs> should we say? Do you know what I mean? Like, there's a kind of, there's a slightly kind of like, um, every, everybody spins yarns all day. I've got endless stories about my family, which are sort of unverifiable at this point. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and like, and who wants to know if they're true or not? They're much more fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose that would be a thing. But like, I mean, I. Yeah, I've never, I've never thought about this before. Usually, you know, you get asked a question in an interview, and it's something that you've at least had a couple of practice runs <laughs> at. But, uh, but yeah, okay, yeah, I'm going to keep thinking on that and get back to you. Okay, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, what did your parents do? Um, my dad worked for a bank for a time, um, and my mum was a primary school teacher. Wow. And uh, my parents aren't together anymore, um, and my mum's retired now, and uh, yeah. Was it was music a big part of the house? Uh, my my mum my mum taught like recorder to seven year olds kind of thing. <laughs> did you she give you any lessons? Yes, she did. I mean, to which for which incidentally, I think she has a, a, a saintly constitution because there is no worse sound in the known universe than thirty seven year olds attempting to play three by mice on recorders. Yeah, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And my mum suffered that for forty years, like on a regular basis. So right, could have said. Actually, speaking of which, we got her. Um, I got when we played Reading Festival. In 2000, 
2013 was it yeah summer 2013 we were on the main stage and just before we went on this is you know the biggest rock festival in the UK and just yeah. before we went on I found out that there was a BBC Radio 1 guy who was going to introduce us and my mum was there she'd never been to a festival before just hanging out and I was like nah f*** that we're going to get my mum to introduce us <laughs> and, and, the, and so we kind of primed her and gave the mic and so we set her up and everything and the BBC guy bless him he's Stevens he's a great guy but he was sort of saying to me he was like you sure you're going to be? There's a lot of people out there. You're going to be right. This my mum was like, I was a primary school teacher for 40 years. I've got this. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to freeze. Yeah, yeah <laughs> don't you worry about that. Yes, yeah, anyway, um, but my parents are like listen to classical music, but they don't believe in drum kits or no. electric guitars at all. And uh, I didn't have anything like that as a kid growing up. So my first exposure to music was when I kind of stumbled across metal. Right. Um, and well, and I was kind of I saw sort of Freddie Mercury tribute concert on TV. Really? Too as well. That was a big like holy. Kind of moment for me. Yeah. I'm all right to swear in this podcast. Oh, swear! Oh, yeah, we encourage yeah, you. Yeah, 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 but, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, that was on TV, and me and my older sister watched it. And I remember because they had Metallica and Guns and Roses on that, and I remember sitting there, kind of going, "What the fuck? This is incredible!" Yeah, that was yeah. amazing. Is, is that the? Did Axel and Elton John do a duet on that yes, one? Yes, they did. Yeah, to try and patch up, well, which I didn't know at the time. But there was that whole thing about Axel had been being homophobic. homophobic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. Elton did that again with Eminem, I believe. I it's sort of like a reoccurring yeah, I theme. I only remember like, the Eminem one. Yeah, yeah that's Elton's new role in life. Yeah. <laughs> Duetting with homophobes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think this is worthwhile to spend your time. Um, <laughs> Where's this conversation going? No, um, like, yeah, just go anywhere. With um, You are saying you came to metal. Did that happen naturally? Did, was there somebody that kind of brought it to you? <laughs> well, here's the true story. Um, you have Games Workshop in Canada? Like, you know, little goblins and orcs and shit. Like, you paint the little lead figurines and have Oh, like, oh yeah, 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 okay. I don't know what it would be called here. No, yeah, the, the, the Games Workshop's like the brand for it in the UK. It's yeah, it's kind of like Dungeons & Dragons, but yeah, sort of extended. Exactly. That kind of vibe. I was really into Games Workshop. I had an undead army. I had an ultramarines <laughs> space, space army. Um, I was into all that shit, and then I was at a friend of mine's house. I was 10 years old, and his older brother... Um, had a whole series of Iron Maiden posters on his wall and um, uh, the Stranger in a Strange Land poster it's Derek Riggs classic it's uh, Eddie as a futuristic zombie cowboy and, uh, and I saw it and just was like that's f***ing great whatever that is I'm, I'm into that I didn't know it was banned I was just sort of remarked that it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen you just like the imagery yeah, yeah and, I, and I just pointed out it went that's cool and, and my friend said oh it's a band and I was just like eh? I think I'd heard the Beatles at this point. And that was about it. Um, <laughs> That's a pretty big departure. Not that many zombie cowboys in the Beatles. No artwork, as I can remember. No one um, talks about that phase of their career. Yeah, exactly. Well, apart from Paul, who's dead. <laughs> uh, oh shit. Um, but but anyway. So yeah. Then um, my dad uh, bought a copy of Killers on cassette from the station from the record shop at the station when that was a thing imagine your dad um, did yeah my dad did on his didn't like drums yeah well he said I mean genuinely to this day he will tell you that, that was his central parenting error <laughs> was, was buying me that cassette because I got it and then you know night and day that was the fork in the road yeah absolutely I, the first track on, I mean don't know if you're familiar with that album but I'm not the opening track and it's an instrumental called Eyes of March that starts with a drum oh, roll oh yeah 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 and I just can't remember that kicking in for the first time and just kind of going okay yeah I've got a new thing that I'm into and how old were you at that point? About, yeah about 10 years old something like that and oh, then wow. like, I, I then immediately went out and bought everything else Maiden had ever done on cassette and then I got into Priest and uh, Metallica Megadeth Pantera Slayer, all that kind of shit. Did you pick up a guitar soon after that? Did you very, very soon after that? This it's slightly it's slightly coincided with my 
friend Chris, who I'm still friends with, he's been my best friend since I was like three years old. We went to primary school together. And he had this. Is, wait, is he in the Old Brother video? Uh, no, that's a di- that's oh, a right. different guy. I'm just taking uh, a shot. Break my one uh, engineer note. Uh, this thing's super. Oh sensitive. shit! Sorry. No, yeah. no, that's okay. It's just yeah. I'll just tap on here instead. I'll give you a drum pad. Okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, so he, um, Chris, lived in a town nearby, and he had this thing. This this mad old woman lived next to him who. He, I think we thought she was a witch or something. Uh, we, we never talked to her. She was a scary old woman. And then when at the, around this time, she died. And in her will, she left the nice young boy next door 500 quid, which when you're 10 is loads of money. Wow. Um, and he was into, he got into metal stuff as well. And so he went and bought a drum kit and um, then basically kind of like sort of bullied me, not bullied me, sort of suggested repeatedly over a period of time that I should get a guitar so that we could jam. And then, you know, it's true you have the same thing here, like from like department stores, you get like a starter pack with like a black oh, and white yeah. strap copy and a 30 watt amp and a lead. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then like Burt Whedon's Play in a Day book totally. as well. And I got that and then, <clears throat> uh, yeah, started playing. Did it come naturally or easy or? Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> uh, I still can't really play thrash properly because it's too hard. And that was actually the other thing that happened at that point with my older sister was really into Counting Crows' first record, yeah. which I thought was kind of wussy at the time. Oh, that's but a great it, record. Oh, my God. I, I now regard it as the kind of, like, foundation stone of my thinking about songwriting. Yeah. But because that record's easy to play because it's all open chords, right? Mm-hmm. So... I basically would sort of spend an hour desperately trying to practice like Hangar 18 by Megadeth or something and then go f*** it and play Mr. Jones <laughs> because I could, cause I could make that sound okay, you know, yeah, and, yeah. Then, and then and that was the dynamic in my kind of music taste for a while. And then uh, and then I had Nirvana and then everything changed as, as it generally did for everybody, right? Yeah. And because to me, the thing about Nirvana was that it was like, I can make that kind of noise. In, in the, my rehearsal room with my drummer friend, we'd been inexpertly massacring ACDC songs, and then suddenly it was like, you know, we were playing Rape Me and stuff like and that. And you can do it, and it sounds yeah, like Rape Me. Yeah, and it can. sounds within the same ballpark. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say that we actually sounded like the Barney, but, but, uh, but yeah, and that was, a, that was a big thing for me. Did you do covers for a long time, like most bands, or did you? Yeah, we, I mean, we did, um, although I did, I had. <laughs> God, I can't believe I'm talking about this. <laughs> I had this thing where like, we'd practice every weekend and I would write like eight songs during the week, all of which were just like pretty much four random chords <laughs> and then me shouting <clears throat> some weird shit. Teenage angsty. Yeah, you know, I remember we had a song called Bombardment that was about blowing up cities. That was pretty <laughs> good. There was a guy called Toby playing in the band as well, who initially had a second guitar because we hadn't yet twigged that the bass was a different instrument to a guitar. And then I remember we were like watching live videos of stuff and kind of going, that, that guy's got a f***ing... There's less strings than that one. There's <laughs> <laughs> like, so something funny going on here. And then we asked Chris's uncle... I can't... I'm telling you mad stories in this. Um, Chris's uncle, who lived on the other side of town, he told me the truest thing anyone's ever told me about music. We, every time we practice every Saturday, we walk across town, and he had an amp that we would borrow to rehearse because it had two inputs, which meant both guitars going to it. And it was heavy as fuck. We were like 12, 11 or 12 at this point. And we go and pick it up and lug it across town. He told me then, he said, you know when you've made it in the music industry when you stop carrying heavy shit? Right. And, and it's true. Absolutely true. Um, so, yeah. So, um, so we, we, and then he told us what a bass was. Um, and then we bought one from a car boot sale for like 20 quid. And I remember the three of us like sat around a table with it on the table going, what is it? <laughs> I do not understand it. And, um, so yeah, Toby started playing bass. So the rehearsal, I'd come in and go, right, I've got eight new songs. The first one goes A, C, F, G. 
for the verse, and do you know what I mean? Just yeah, like, awesome. and then he go ding 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 ding, da, 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 da. and then I shout over the top of it. Just make some magic. Yeah, and then I kind of—I remember—I got a discharge record and felt validated because we sounded a bit like Such discharge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving forward a bit, so you know, you're going through school. You've got, I guess, bands on the side. At what point did you decide I want to make my career in music? I want to tour. I want um, to do everything. I think. I think the thing. The thing was when I first sort of fell in love with me because I fell in love with it really hard. Like I think a lot of people do. You know, you just kind of you 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 open the door and just go bah and like dive into the ball pond of being a music nerd and. Um, I think I, you know, I sort of would watch like videos of Donington Monster Rock and be like, yeah, I want to do that. Um, punk rock was a big thing for me, like Vine Nirvana, and then and well, and then Green Day and Offspring was Green Day and Offspring from I mean I'm 33 and uh, Smash and Dookie were like. Um, I remember I was on holiday and I met a girl and she was wearing a corn T-shirt and I was kind of into corn at the time and I went and said hi and she said. You don't want to be into corn, and she gave me a cassette that had um, Black Flag first uh, four years and uh, Minor Threat discography on it, and that was just like, oh wow, okay, things just got interesting, you know. And so listening to Pennywise and all that sort of fat rack stuff, and and then you get into the whole like DIY culture and everything, and start going to shows in London and finding out about the punk scene. And was that appealing to you, the DIY? It's like we can do this myself. Like, did you like the? Because a lot of you know punk bands and DIY, you're essentially becoming an entrepreneur while also trying yeah. to be creative and being in a band. Yeah, which which I mean, I can irri- irritate lots of punks by when I, I do uh, regularly by 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 saying that I still on some levels consider what I do to be DIY. I mean, you know, I'm, I work with major labels and stuff these days, but to the extent that it's about being proactive, about not waiting for somebody to sort of wipe your ass and give you you know a, a fucking toga and a chaise along to write songs on or whatever do you know what I mean it's like yeah. fuck that get up do make make your luck make the thing things that you want to do um, so yeah and, and, and entrepreneur I think is exactly the right word and I'm, I'm kind of proud of that aspect of what I do you know um, yeah. but uh, but yeah I mean I think I think I probably wouldn't have put it in those terms when I was younger because it was I was into the whole like anarchist punk thing like propaganda was a big big deal for me still is um, and yeah you know that I remember started going to hardcore shows in London. I remember sick of it. Uh, sorry, Agnostic Front was the first hardcore show I ever went to, and then I went to Straight Edge. Um, right, age sixteen. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you know, did you when you did go Straight Edge at sixteen? I mean, I guess like most people at sixteen, did you did you buy in? Did you believe it? Like with all your yeah, hell yeah, yeah, hell yeah. I used to X off at school and shit, and then get told off. Yeah. Drawing on my hands. Yeah. Uh, um, shit like that. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah, I got really really into hardcore for a long time. Like. Um, Played in hardcore bands, and that was kind of that was kind of my first sort of proper like practical foray into musician. Uh, when you were, you know, as it became sort of a, a thing that you were doing full time, did your parents, you know, support it? You know, who had obviously very traditional jobs. Were they? Um, they well, when I was at school, I was in a band called Nizak, and that fell apart when we left school. Then I was in a band called Million Dev for four years. My parents, but this is like age like nineteen to twenty three thereabouts, and my yeah. parents were kind of like sort of humming and ahhing from the sidelines kind of thing, you know what I mean? But then when that broke up, I think they were both kind of like, cool, and now you're going to cut your hair and get a job kind of vibe, you know what I mean? And um, Did you contemplate that when the band broke up? I mean, because that band was pretty prominent, you guys had a following. Yeah, we. I mean, we did a farewell tour, we did kind of, you know, sort of four or five hundred people a show kind of thing around the UK. Um, I, I mean, I'm not sure I ever did really. I, I thought I might have had to, but I didn't ever want to, right. you know. And I, and I started playing solo acoustic shows just before the band broke up because we agreed to break up and did a farewell tour, so I had time to, you know, plan Prepare. plan what I was going to do. And and um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, and, and, and it, there was a, it was hard just in the sense that I went from playing to, you know, four or five hundred people a show to playing to like three people a show right at the beginning of the solo acoustic thing. And um, lots of people, including my parents and me, were just like, what, what are you doing with your life? You know, is there f mileage in this? But it seemed like something that was worth pursuing. Mm -hmm. Did the transition to the, the more solo acoustic sort of like folk uh, rock, like, did that feel natural to you? Is it something that you would you felt like you were growing towards? Yeah, yeah, it did. I mean, it was an it was a slightly a kind of shot in the dark when I did the first couple of shows with it. Were you nervous? Were you like, are people going to accept yeah, yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, shit myself. Um, well, although I, did, I did a couple of kind of Frank from Million Dead kind of solo shows for like charity gigs and stuff like that that we were a bit kind of slapdash and I just did nearly on covers or whatever. But um, you know, because of that whole thing of like hanging out with my sister playing Count and Crow songs when I was a kid, there was a sort of a background of that idea of the sing along. Yeah, you know, and and I like the idea that by playing on a stage, you facilitate a communal activity rather than being the focus point of everyone's attention. Do you know what I mean? It's like you play music in order to enable everybody in the room to do something together, as opposed to shut up and listen to me. I'm doing my thing. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of philosophical divide between those two things. I think it feels more like a communal experience right, as opposed you know, to like sort of people watching you dictate or, or yeah, exactly. Right. It's a, and it, it, yeah, it's you're, like I say, yeah, you're a facilitator rather than a. Dictator. Okay. <laughs> um, but but yeah, and, and that and that I think is an important kind of philosophical frame. What I do now, in the sense that you know, I like it when the the barrier breaks down philosophically. You know, did people respond quickly to that? I mean, did it start growing? Yeah, reasonably quickly. I mean, there was there was some there was a fallow eighteen months or so. I'd say of when, when I was playing all the time, and I mean that's in that period of time where I was kind of learning how to write songs and and engage a crowd on my own and that kind of thing as well. So it was a useful time. Um, as your music's evolved and your profile's grown, um, like I said, in doing research, you said some outspoken things, uh, <laughs> which I, I think is part of the appeal and why you know mm -hmm. people are so drawn to you. But as your profile grows uh, and you have more fans, your words mean a lot more to mm -hmm. a lot more people. Does that fact ever sort of... Is it consideration now when you speak, or do you still sort of speak your mind? And um, there's more consideration, yeah. And it's funny because there are people who sort of, you know, accuse you of, sort of, oh, you've got media training or some shit, or like, you know, that somehow it's compromised to be more considered in the way that you speak. But it's just the thing I always think it's easy to be an underground band because the only people who know who you are are people who like you, right? So, you know, it's, it's there's no there's fucking, no stakes. There's a, yeah, it's no challenge you make a statement and the only people who are ever going to come across it and you make music the only people who are ever going to come across are people who seek it out and that's fantastic and brilliant but the thing is you know if you reach a certain level of success and your music is getting played on radio stations and you give interviews that are in sort of publications stuff like that you naturally become start being exposed to people who don't like you and aren't exposed to you now there's nothing wrong with that I'm not complaining about it that's the way of the world but it just means that you do have to consider how you you have to be slightly more careful about the way that you phrase things and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, it's a lesson hard learned for me. Yeah. Um, and, like, and like and it's important. I'm not complaining about that in any way. It's the nature of the beast. You can't spend your life promoting your existence and then complain when people notice and don't think that you're amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's no, like, totally. Get over yourself. So, um, so yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing. And there are, there are moments when I kind of worry about. Because you harden your skin as well, particularly in the age of, of um, social media. Billy Bragg's got a great line here. It's like, you know, someone's kind of saying, I've always wanted to call Billy Bragg. Now I've got Twitter, I can. <laughs> you know, and um, they, uh, people use that stuff for, for slightly dubious ends. You know, it's, people start slacking you off on social media. It's like, get a f***ing hobby. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
but so yeah, you 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 harden your skin quite a lot, you know. Um, and there are days when I worry about that, just in the sense that I hope that I'm not kind of deadening my um, <laughs> emotions, however you want to put it. But but it, it comes to the territory. Do you ever? I mean, do you ever get nervous? I mean, because obviously humans evolve, and they're gonna they're gonna have the right to change their opinions or take different stances. Well, yeah, except that the internet doesn't accept that opinion at all. I got an email just the other day, somebody pointing out a lyrical inconsistency between a song that I wrote when I was eighteen and a song that I wrote when I was thirty-two, <laughs> and it was just kind of like, dude, I don't know what you want me to say at this point, but f- you, fourteen years, you know? Yeah, like, like yeah. Would you not want to say something because then exactly that? Someone might say like, well, hey, you felt like this before and now you're contradicting yourself, but it's natural to sort of change yeah. over time. I, uh, yeah. Would you be less inclined to share an opinion, I guess? Yeah, I, that, I do. I am slightly more cautious about sharing my opinions. Part, partly because I, can't, I just... One of the best pieces of advice that I've got given was my friend Ian said to me, he said, before you argue with anybody, can ask yourself whether you give a about their opinion. And if, they, if you don't, don't bother. And it's like, just, I don't care enough about the opinions of the screaming idiots on Twitter to engage in public debate about some of my opinions about the world. I don't care. I don't, right. I don't give a shit what their opinion is. And so I'm not going to spend my time putting my opinions on Twitter because that is, that's baiting people. Do you know what I mean? I'll have, to have these conversations with my friends. So yeah, cool. And, I, and I'll be a considered <coughs> careful intellectual to the degree that I can be in my life. But I don't need to be posting shit on Facebook 24 hours a day. Right. Do you know what I mean? I'll go over it. With um, Tape Deck Heart, it's mm. been described as a, a breakup album, mm. and I, I guess I, I always find it interesting with with any kind of songwriting. Are you ever concerned when you're writing about you know hurting the subject of the songs? Is it a consideration? Yeah, the, that yes, very much so. I mean, um, and the, yeah, tape, I've received there there was some fallout, should we say, from that record? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Um, which which I don't feel good about at all because. I tried to write as honestly as I could about the situation. I think one of the one of the motivations for Take That Cart was it was the idea of writing a um, breakup record from the point of view of the, of the perpetrator rather than the victim because it strikes me that every breakup record I could think of was was written from the point of view of the victim. What was me? Yeah, what was me? I got shot on kind of thing, and it's like, well, somebody somewhere's being the bad guy in all of these. Where's their albums? Right. And, and I, I went through this horrible breakup that was largely my fault, and I thought it would be interesting to try and write about that honestly. <clears throat> but in so doing, you kind of you know, encapsulate what are arguably sort of private emotions and statements and feelings and that kind of thing. And saying it's largely my fault, was that like something that you put on yourself, a personal opinion, or was it, is it sort of agreed that it was your fault? Did I think it's agreed that it's my fault. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think we could, we could happily <laughs> shake on that one. Um, but yeah, and the, and the thing is, we're friends now, and, and, mm-hmm. and, that's, and that's a good thing, and she's a wonderful person who I care about very much. But like, it, it was a difficult time. And, and I did sort of wonder whether or not it was the right thing to do to write this record about what happened between us and I think to a degree she has a right to be pissed off but the, the sort of counter argument to it is that and it's, this is slightly pretentious in its way but like you know I think art is, is a sort of sacrosanct activity and that when in the, in the moment of creation it, you shouldn't limit yourself yeah you know and, and you deal with the consequences afterwards but like um, you know, I mean, like one of my favorite bands, and actually, a, a, who, who sort of came back into my life as a big influence around Tech Deck Heart, is a band called Arab Strap, okay. kind of a Scottish indie band, who released a record called Philophobia, um, which is just the most excoriatingly personal, vicious. Oh, by listen to that record. Like, you know, um, the, like the last lines of the first song in it, it just says, you said I'm an asshole. what was I thinking? It's far too easy to just to blame it on the drinking. <laughs> you know, and it's like, there's such a viciously, viciously personal record. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I loved it. I, I love that album. It's kind of, 
difficult to listen to, and I enjoy that. There's a degree of masochism in listening to it. So, so yeah, you wouldn't pull punches on lyrics. You would never go, you know what, maybe I should take that word out because it might hurt somebody. Yeah. You want it, you want it to be like a pure Yeah, if thing. there's something that makes me wince, I generally try and give it in because it means you've touched a nerve of some kind. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were, having said that, there was one line on Take the Heart, which I'm not going to tell you what it is, which I did excise because it was too far. Come on. I really push it. I love I'm it. Really oh, I'm totally and, 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 and I spent I spent an extremely long time debating with myself about whether or not that was the right thing to do, but it really I'm glad I did in yeah. the end because it you know, it wouldn't have gone down well. <laughs> yeah, that was something a little bigger. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I guess the same question applies to so you have a memoir, The Road Beneath My Feet. Yeah. So I guess for a memoir do you draw a line at, ah, I won't share this, is this pertinent information, or are you like, I'm putting it all yeah, together? Yeah, the, 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 well, the thing is, the thing about the book is it's a, it's a tour memoir, so yeah. it's about touring. You know? Is it so, only, so is it about shows? Each, each entry is a write-up of a show. And I mean, it, it talks about the things that were happening around the show, obviously, and there's anecdotage in there, and, and you know, it'll be like, I just finished recording this record, and that's why we were doing this, and blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's not about my personal life directly, and it's not about my family, and it's not about my upbringing, or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it, it, is, it has a naturally limited scope to it. Within that arena, I've tried to be as honest as I can, and there were certainly, when I did this kind of final reback of the approved draft, there was a moment of kind of going, <laughs> I'm actually about to release this to the public. Yeah. You know, and, and people are going to know about this. Um, but it's had its legal read when I got told which bits I had to take out because oh, yeah. I would get sued. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I had to change a lot of names. Right. Um, well, because they were like, basically, they were like, in this story, you are legally implicating this person in the following activity, and you either have to take this out or you have to change their name and, and, get, and like make it clear that it's a fake name kind of thing. That's stuff's so funny. Like, would you even anticipate that when writing a memoir? No idea. So, well, and then I called, I had fun. I called all the people whose names I had to change and asked them what they wanted to be called now. You gave them, they yeah, get yeah, to create their was, own moniker, yeah, yeah, their totally. fake name? Could they yeah. just say, no, keep my name in? Or? Yes, they could oh, do, yeah, but, yeah. but it's like, I then have to explain to them that if they then um, get, yeah. get arrested sign something. or whatever the f you know, <laughs> then it's not on me. Yeah. Um, Coming out of, you know, like you're saying, uh, the punk scene and being so um, strongly in love and involved with that, uh, I read the term, or I've read the term a few times about, like, punk guilt. Like, basically, mm. you know, bands or artists that play bigger rooms, yeah. they, you know, reach a level of success. Um, do you, or have you ever struggled with that going, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I mean, this is a line that I've trotted out before, but, like, I always think punk rock is, has much in common with Catholicism. Like, if you're kind of born into it, like, you can be an ex-Catholic, but you're never, like, a non-Catholic, you know? It's sort of somehow in, seeps into your DNA, and the same is entirely true of punk rock. No matter how far you got away from it, if punk was the thing you fell in love with when you were a kid, there's always a little part of your brain wondering what Ian MacKay would do in any given situation. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and um... And, and, and within that, I love it and I hate it at the same time because I think it gives you a, a pretty good moral framework for approaching the world. And I think the idea of punk scenes is a really interesting and strong way for kids to grow up, you know. I mean, I don't have kids, but I, I'd like to think that if I did, the idea of kid being, my kid being involved in a punk scene between the ages of about 16 to 18, it's, it's kind of an interesting sort of like Petri dish way of getting to grips with the ideas of having your own morals and things that you stand up for. And... <clears throat> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I think there's something good in that. But, yeah, when it becomes restrictive and cliquey, I, I get very disinterested very quickly in, in punk rock, you know? Um, and, 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 I mean, you know, it's been years. I mean, the very first time somebody called me and said that was when I did a tour in a van that had seats in it. 
<laughs> right, right, yeah, right, right. We're pulled up at the rehearsal space where we were, and we've been touring in transit vans with just the gear packed in the back, and he'd lie on top of the gear. And then we got, and we got big enough to have a van that had like four seats in it, and it pulled up, and the dude running the place was like, man, you guys think of Motley Crue or some shit. <laughs> um, <coughs> so even at the time, I was kind of like, pretty sure Motley Crue don't tour in vans. They're <laughs> <laughs> doing all right. Jets, actually. Yeah, yeah, totally. But um, but yeah, but I mean, in a way, that was kind of like cool. Got that whole setup shit out of the way painlessly. If that's where the bar is, I'm glad to have stepped over it. Yeah. Does it? Do you become like sort of numb to that accusation yeah, as time goes on? Well, you do. I'm. There's a day that I'm looking forward to, which is okay. So I started going. And, I started. I did my first tour when I was 16 which is now coming up for 17 years ago, which means that if I get given narky shit by a 17 year old, I can say, I've been touring since before you were born. Yeah. And, off. and, and, it's, and, and as time passes and that, that kind of age yeah. limit rises, it's such a great comeback. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, I have been on the road since before you were born. Um, <clears throat> you know, and you're gonna tell me what punk rock is and isn't and and but the, but then the thing about it is is like I was I was kind of shitty and cliquey and and judgmental when I was a 16 year old punk kid it's part of the nature <clears throat> yeah and I, and, right and I was probably and I probably made narky online or, I mean social media wasn't what it is then but there were forums and shit probably made narky comments about someone like Billy Joe Armstrong who would have turned around and said exactly the same thing you have been touring since the early 80s what would you know about anything mm -hmm. so there's a degree to which it's part of the life cycle of a punk Person, you know, you you go from being narky and judgmental to being older and wiser about it and sighing when kids are narky and judgmental to you. But um, you've been touring, like you said, for so long, and, and touring and writing and, and releasing records has been such a big part of your life. Do you see, you know, something else? Like, is there anything you're interested in outside that you'd want to do going forward in music? You know, um, politics, education, anything? I mean, I, I'm, I'm interested in the idea of writing more. I mean, right, the, my, my major emotion on finishing the book that I've just done was like, I could do better than this. Oh, like, right. um, not necessarily on that particular subject, but like, uh, I've got some vague ideas of things I might try and write about. Although I now have a, quite a lot more humility about how difficult it is to write a book <laughs> because it, it, I was like, yeah, it's going to be Easy. No, um, writing books is hard. Um, uh, yeah, so there's that. I mean, but I mean, I'm 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 a proud flag waving um, monomaniac for music. I don't really care that much about anything else, and and I'm happy with that. In love rock and roll. I, it's all I do is listen. In my spare time, I read books about music and I watch documentaries. I try and I, I've recently been like trying to learn more about um, like classic country, like Leuven Brothers, George Jones, shit like that, because there's a gap in my knowledge. So doing that, and then I've recently read this absolutely incredible book about post punk, and I've been listening to, like Throbbing Gristle and shit like that as well. So you know, and I'd, I'd lovely, I'd happily die as a man who just listened to a shit ton of records, and that was the sum total of my achievement in life. Mm -hmm. That's fine. I'm down with that. Um, with consuming so much music, are there two records uh, that we might not be familiar with that you're listening to right now that you're loving? <coughs> uh, yeah, there are. <laughs> um, Can you narrow it down to two? Yeah, right. Now. Well, right. If we're talking about yeah, records right now, I'm right to now. right now, that makes it much easier. Um, there's a band called Field Report. They they have then they've done the, just released a second record called Marigold, and, and um, I'm about to drop a massive clangor of a name, so forgive me for this. But um, they were coming to me by Adam Juritz, uh, uh, who, who uh, told me to check out the record. And um, then they played. They were in the UK opening for Jeff Tweedy on a tour, and they played a, a sort of secret uh, warm-up show, as it were, in a pub in London. Uh, they got announced on the day, and I got a text saying, "Go to this." show so I went down and it was one of the most sublimely beautiful things I've seen in 
years. You know, sometimes you get like obsessed with a record that you actually can't listen to any other music for a time, mm-hmm. and it's just kind of like I sort of go to my iPod or CD player, whatever, and go. No, no, it's Phil Port again. <laughs> Robbie Lackritz, who's a friend who manages Bahamas and Feist, pr- uh, produced the record. Oh, right. So he's a Toronto guy. Oh, he lives in Toronto. Toronto. I've got my pronunciation. Yeah, right. it's spelled T-R-O-N-N-O. Yeah, Toronto. Toronto. The other one I want to shout out is this guy called Will Varley, who is a singer-songwriter from Kent in the UK. And... He, uh, actually, so tonight at the show, there's a guy called Beans on Toast opening. He, I went to see him play a New Year's Day show a couple of years ago, and the opening was, was this guy called Will Valley, and I was just sitting there being like, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard, ever. And everyone else was like, oh, yes, Will. They, Will's just sort of around the scene. He'd be kicking um, around. And- yeah, and I was like, I am, what the f***, man? <laughs> and uh, his songwriting, and I, this makes me sound like a music journalist, but I don't say this kind of thing very often. He's got that kind of stillness and poise <clears throat> and kind of timelessness that the first three or four Dylan records have. Um, you know, just that feeling that he didn't write the song, he found it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And his lyricism is off the deep end. Um, wow. Yeah, you know, it's like your hair's going grey and so is your moustache and your best friend from school just died in a car crash. You bury him, it's raining, and you whisper to your wife, what have I done with my life? Okay. And it's just kind of like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> actually that one. That's that's an interesting question. I always wonder uh, about uh, musicians. It's like when you hear a great song, whether it's you know like an artist that you see on stage or on the radio, do you hear that song and go, "Oh wow, well done," or do you go, "I wish I did that"? Oh uh, yeah, I definitely the latter. I think that there's a degree. I think most successful creative people have a competitive streak in them. Yeah, you know, it's like particularly. I mean, I'm sure the same. If you see a band play live, I'm f- taking notes. God uh, damn. Uh, so Okay. Okay. Let's okay. <laughs> see how you did that. <laughs> quite good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you say with your clenched teeth. Quite, yeah. Quite good. I just that, it's yeah. like mm, opening with two songs from the new album. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about that after the show. Yeah. Um, do you know what I mean? It's yeah. Like, yeah. And then you start getting nitpicky about shit that's like not even that important. Like, well, at least well they did they that one little part and then that's yeah, the, yeah. the only thing that, that was a run but they took two songs they're not in the same key yeah. I mean you know, yeah that yeah, transition yeah. sloppy, sloppy. Yeah. not yeah. professional yeah. 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 yeah six out of ten um, <laughs> but, yeah no completely and I mean even but even I mean it gets more it's more anal than that because like if I hear it and this is actually part of the reason I've been getting deep deep into old country stuff lately is there's chord, certain chord turnarounds and licks which is just like that. A, there's, a, there's a degree of um platonic perfection in stuff like George Jones which I find fascinating and Townsend's Ant as well who I'm totally obsessed with and they're just little kind of just the way he'll get from an F chord to a G chord or whatever and, and it's like that's how you do that that's, that's the perfect way to play that for the final segment of our show what Max likes to call the dessert we have our pop culture aficionado Shane Cunningham hello hello all right how you been? You been good? <laughs> yeah, not really, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had an eventful night, you were saying. You watched both Magic Mike movies with with our friend yeah. John. Can you I, saw both Magic Mike movies in one night. I did. Am I allowed to say I smoked weed, though? <laughs> <laughs> you can say whatever you want. Yeah, is that, no, is that illegal? Though? We'll, like, we'll do do I we'll, lose my job? If, it, if we're not allowed to say it, we'll bleep the second word. <laughs> we could call it wacky tobacco, but I got uh, high. You had a good time? <laughs> yes. And um, uh, my friend John came over, and uh, yeah, we watched the first one. And the first one's kind of like a dark film. Yeah. Uh, and then... 
you know, we, we ordered a large pizza. We ate it all. Pops brought a bunch of, uh, my friend's name is John Pablos, uh, brought over a bunch <laughs> now of- Now you're implicating John. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. He also works for the company. Beep a lot of stuff here. Um, but yeah, we ate cupcakes. <laughs> this is great. And then, uh, then we're super high. Hold on. Wait, I got to Where'd you get the high. cupcakes? He, he, he had a, uh, what, you know how when you get married, you have all these parties, like a bridal party or oh, something? Oh, yeah, yeah. There was one of those parties and all the leftover cupcakes. They were in the shape of brides. So <laughs> weird. We, yeah. <laughs> so, so you and John are sitting at your place. Yeah. With, eating bridesmaids parties, cupcakes or whatever Bridesmaids cupcakes. So yes. John's getting married. Yes. All right. <laughs> so then and we're watching Magic Mike. Watching Magic Mike. And uh, we're having the best time, like laughing our asses off. It did get a little dark at the end, so then we were like, okay, let's take the uh, TTC or whatever. Let's go to uh, Young and Dundas. You're already taking the THC. Yes, <laughs> it's true. That's good. <laughs> um, quick. So, so then we get to the theater, and it was just literally like 112 degrees in the theater, full of sweaty, like hormonal. Is that what the word is? Women? Like. It, it, it was ridiculous, though. Like, it, and. Uh, and like pops is, you know, John's like six five, and like he went and got me popcorn and a diet coke, <laughs> and uh, we laughed our asses off. It was one of the best movies it's a great I, movie. I've seen. Yeah, yeah, like comedic movies. Have you seen it, Max? I saw, yeah, I went. See, I went to you the first one. You guys saw Magic yeah. Mike uh, XL, and nobody invited me. I would have saw that. I went with Lauren to the first one. My girlfriend Lauren uh, went to the drive-in, and she was all hot and heavy. And then, <laughs> uh, and then we saw the second one like last week. Were I, the women I, all hooting? and hollering oh yeah screen. it's a party in was there. lauren hooting and hollering yeah, oh yeah and then she looked at my body and was just like <laughs> she's unimpressed um so the, was the crowd really into it in your theater shane totally into it like there's people behind it like kicking the seats and you know how john he's really uh when you go with john like i went to see 12 years a slave with john and he's whispering in, not whispering talking very loud in my ear the whole time Who's the guy who whips everybody in it? The, uh, uh, the slave owner? Fassbender? Yeah, like Michael Fassbender comes to the screen. He's like, hey, that's Michael Fassbender. <laughs> I'm like, I know. I know. Unlike now, I know who Michael Fassbender is. <laughs> and, and then, uh, but for this movie, it was totally welcomed. We were talking like back and forth, joking, just cackling. And we were way less loud than everyone else in the theater. But yeah, it was awesome. It what was, was the ratio of men to women? We were the only two guys there, right. 100%. right. All right, so you've both seen... I've only seen uh, Magic Mike 1. I haven't seen mm-hmm. 2. Oh, it's a total departure. Like, uh, you know how um, there's that drug dealer, the huge fat guy, and he's, like, kind of dark, and he's, like, dangerous, and they go searching after, like, the, the hunky young newcomer? In the second one, he's just, like, a total funny hype man. Like, anything that was remotely serious is now a total joke. It's kind it's, of a breezy movie. You know what? Actually, um, as soon as we got home from Magic Mike XXL, Lauren and I put on... Step Up, which is uh, dance Jane's first, yeah. uh, you know, launch into stardom. Have you guys seen that movie? I haven't seen no. Step Up. Was Lauren crazy horny when she got home? <laughs> <laughs> no, but she, she, yeah, so as soon as we got home, she's like, we should put on Step Up right now. <laughs> and you f***ed her while watching that. <laughs> Why, can you not say that? We can't say hi or f- What is this? Lights is talking about her titties. <laughs> Another one in the books. We did it, Mikey. We sure did. We'll see if we make it to episode three. If we don't die on the weekend, you know? <laughs> um, that should be the tagline of the show. If we don't die on the weekend. That's funny. Yeah. We'll see you next week. See you next week if we don't die on the weekend. <laughs>
That's good. That's, that's pretty uh, good. I think that is the tank. Special thanks to Frank Turner, uh, who is a fantastic guest and a great conversation. Uh, big thanks to Shane Cunningham for coming on and sharing his tales of how magical Mike truly can be. <laughs> um, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Mike on Much. We we just posted, uh, you know, a couple things up there, so. It's active. We're going. It's tantalizing. Yes. And I think as we go forward, tantalizing. I don't know why I said <laughs> there's, that word. There's nothing tantalizing. That's a weird word. Um, <laughs> all of the artwork that you see for the Mike on Much podcast is done by Jenna Gregory. You can find her stuff at jennasdoodles.com. Special thank you to the Mounties for letting us use their song, Headphones. It's a hell of a song. And also to Spirits, one of Hamilton's finest bands that no longer play, but have great music uh, that lives on. It really does. Mm -hmm. The Mike on Much podcast is produced by Max Kerman, and I am your host, Mike Veerman. See you next week if we don't die on the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. That's, That's a tagline. 